0: This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate all the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. So uh, anyway, let's get to it. We have an unbelievable guest with us this week, cancer survivor and CEO and founder of Offscript Media, Matthew Zachary is here and he's gonna blow your minds and we're gonna talk all about being an advocate. And we're talking this week about the story of the exodus from Egypt, which is quite literally the most famous story in world literature. Now, I think most people are familiar with the broad outline of the story. The Israelites are slaves in Egypt. God sends Moses to lead them out. Q, Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey. But what most folks don't often remember is how the story of the Exodus actually starts. Because it starts with a very particular detail. And that detail is critical to understanding the entire narrative. And in fact, that detail has played an important role in American history. So what am I talking about? Well, when Moses tells the Israelites it's time to bounce, what's the first thing they do? As the book of Exodus tells it, the answer is they go to their Egyptian slave masters and they demand their gold and silver valuables. And they actually get them so that when the Israelites leave Egypt, they leave with a bit of money saved up. Now, look, it's good the Israelites got paid. After all, they'd been enslaved for over 200 years. But why is this? at the top of the priority list for leaving Egypt? Why does the most famous story literally of all time begin with this detail? And the answer I think is that the Exodus is ultimately a tale of freedom. It's the tale of freedom, freedom and human dignity. And the first step towards earning freedom is being unafraid to advocate for yourself, to articulate what you need. And if the Israelites were going to be free, The first thing they needed to do was show their former masters, their God, and most importantly, themselves, that they could advocate for their needs. And that's why this story so resonated with great American advocates for freedom. So probably the most famous example is Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist, one of my heroes, who in the wake of the Civil War pointed to this detail from the Exodus story in numerous places, in particular in his autobiography, as a model for how black slaves should emancipate themselves. They should demand compensation for their years of forced labor. And he referred to the Exodus story and this detail from it over and over again. And I think that points us to one last very important point about this story, which is that the moment, the very first moment, when the Israelites finally stand up for themselves and advocate for their needs, is also the moment when they transform from a bunch of unconnected individuals or tribes into a people into a community, and that's no accident because even if you recognize that you're in a bad situation and you know that you have needs that aren't being met, it can be hard to stand up all by yourself and articulate what you need. But once you become part of a community, a group of people whose experiences you share, whom you care about and who care about you, all of a sudden it becomes much easier to make your voice heard because then you're not just one person advocating for yourself, you're a bunch of people advocating for each other And that's how you go from a you and an I to a we, to an us. So to talk about how we do this, how to be unafraid to say what you need and how to create and nurture community in the face of adversity, I decided I had to bring on one of the most remarkable people I could think of, the host of the phenomenal Out of Patients podcast, which I highly recommend, the founder of Stupid Cancer. And a guy who, People Magazine, guys, People Magazine called the People's Voice in Healthcare. Matthew Zachary, Matthew, thanks so much for being here.
1: It is a pleasure to be here, and may I ask a question?
0: Oh my God, the floor is open.
1: <laughs> Why is this podcast different than all other podcasts?
0: Oh, my God, can you come back on the Passover episode? Let's make it happen.
1: <laughs> I couldn't help myself.
0: Matthew, Zachary, we are going to Jew it up. If you want, we'll Jew it up. But That's uh, fine with me. So, okay, it's it's 1995. For most people, that's just like a regular, cheesy, awkward year in the 90s, right? Like like Gangster's Paradise was huge that year. Oasis. Cracked
1: was... rear view. Hey, that's all I got to say.
0: Exactly, right? Oasis was still a thing. Yes. But, but you, so you're a senior in college, I believe. And all of a sudden, you get some pretty bad news. So what happens?
1: So during the summer, I was off, as most college students were, and I was rehearsing and doing all sorts of cool stuff, preparing to submit my application to grad school, like as one would normally do in their senior year undergraduate. And, you know, playing, composing, doing all the normal things you're supposed to be doing. And you're a pianist, right? You're a pianist. Yeah, I'm classically trained concert pianist since the age of 11 at the time. And I was writing scores and commercials and whatnot. And I wanted to go to USC to write for film. Like, how many people know what they want to do when they're 20? I did. So when I got back to school, all of a sudden, for those musicians listening, I lost the ability to arpeggiate with my left hand. And what that means is basically running your fingers up and down the keyboard fairly quickly. The dexterous, is that a word? the dexterousness (laughs) of your fingers you can't see it on video i'm wiggling my fingers matthew zagri's wiggling his fingers guys (laughs) yes so anyway, long story short i was like this is weird i can't play with my left hand and it was working two weeks ago and i'm also a lefty so i couldn't write as well as i would normally have and you know you're you're dumb and young and invincible and stupid oh whatever i'll just swap hands because they gonna be dexterous why not so I spent the entire semester like writing with my right hand and like Amadeus style swapping my hands, playing bass in trouble the other <laughs> way and conducting with my other hand and like, like Jimmy ignoring- Hendrix guitar upside down. You know, I'm telling you, the <laughs> fact that I had the talent to do that and yet the ignorance to think it was okay to just do that. <laughs> I mean, eventually the headaches got bad enough where I went to the campus doctors, and they diagnosed me consistently with everything: carpal tunnel, Epstein Barr, meningitis, mini stroke, uh, early MS, play the hits, uh, diabetes, (laughs) like weird every (laughs) like what? And then the running joke, which isn't a joke, is they actually thought I had some kind of upper respiratory infection that was affecting my neuromotor coordination, and gave me rubitessen for brain cancer, which is what I wound up having in January of 96. So that was my life at 21 years old.
0: And from there, I mean, obviously, I mean, your life is completely turned upside down and you get a terminal diagnosis. I mean, like you're told, right, that you have some extremely short amount of time to live. So, so
1: what happens then? It's very Lifetime TV if you think about it. It's always six months to live. Why is it six? Who, is that funny? It should be like seven. Seven's a funnier number. Like seven months to live. It's
0: like Matt Damon's character in 30 Rock. It's like we always tell them where it's going to be another half hour on the runway because that's, you know, it's short enough that they don't go crazy, but it's long know. enough. You know?
1: Exactly. It's like the Jew time of cancer diagnosis. Come on. Really? Really? Just another 30 minutes? Exactly. Yeah. I had a cancer called medulloblastoma, which is a very, very rare brain tumor, and it's rare enough that there's only 200 cases a year in the U.S., it's also rare that it is not in your brain. It is actually in your cerebellum, which is technically your brain, but it's the structure behind your brain that controls all the things like breathing, the autonomic stuff that you don't, how your kidneys just do their thing. Semi-important. And (laughs) so the surgery is very invasive and the statistics back then, the stats were horrible and I think the third nail in the coffin for the statistics they gave me were the fact that it normally presents in kids under the age of eight. And I was the first like young adult they had ever seen with this tumor. And what makes it more intriguing, again, for the listeners, you're born with it. This thing has been lurking in my head, decided not to wake up and screw me over when I was eight kind of just sat by idly and said, I'll wait till he's just about ready to go to grad school. Psych. And that's kind of why they said that survival rates after surgery are very low. Let's see where you're at after radiation and maybe we'll talk about chemo after your massive craniotomy. Yeah, that's where I was at. And yeah, not fun. And so somehow, however you explain it, you beat
0: cancer. And- You would think kind of if if we're going back to the Hallmark movie, that's where, oh, you're so grateful and you meet up with your best girl (laughs) and you ride off into the sunset. And instead, you end this journey right before the credits roll and you're mad as hell. And this kind of puts you on the path to stupid
1: cancer. But what drove that frustration as you're coming out of this incredible win? Yeah, so this forwards ahead to what we're going to talk about, but I was born with an inordinate amount of, I would call it douchebaggery. <laughs> Is that uh, an kind
0: of, official diagnosis? I think right. That's a, a John Stewart word, but yeah,
1: exactly. Right. <laughs> uh, I came up with it before John Stewart. You're welcome.
0: And but we it, Jews are good at everything. It's
1: chutzpah. It's moxy. Like my parents were this way. My brothers, we would just like always anti-authoritarian and always questioning things, and so just in a natural inquisitive nature for why. Not like your eight-year-old saying, why is the sky blue and why is the atmosphere and what's the earth? Like, well, help me understand what this actually means. And it's 2021. And even today, you talk to doctors and you're smart and they don't listen to you. So back then, it was implausible for a doctor to have an intelligent, cogent, young patient asking questions. And what bothered me the most was that they didn't care I was a pianist. They just cared that I had cancer. I was a piece of biology to them. My neurosurgeon was a human being, a real mensch, a Hamish guy, like met us on a Shabbos, like like that's mensch, right? But the mechanics that were in charge of all the other logistics and surgeries, and I mean, post-surgeries and whatever, robots. And I just felt like I wasn't being treated with respect. So what really upset me after the shock and after the Charlie Brown teacher crap that happened for months and months and months was like... They never said, oh, you know what? You're a pianist, right? Maybe we should get you some PT or you're not 80. Let's figure out what's different about you. You know, we didn't use mental health like that, but like, so you don't go stir crazy. And why is this patient different than all other patients? Yes, exactly. I was <laughs> the rare young adult with brain cancer at NYU Sloan Kettering, Columbia, blah, blah, blah. It didn't occur to me to be pissed off until after I was somehow alive when I realized that I shouldn't have this shell of a life because I was quote, cured for now. And at what cost was it to the health system and to the data and the statistics and the humble brag of their research, was it to leave me more socially crippled as a human being than if I almost had actually died having no surgery or radiation. So that's really where the angst started. And how dare you treat me this way? I'm grateful I'm still here, but at what cost? And I wasn't able to make any decisions that were what was important to me. It was what was important to them. So that's where all of this stemmed from. The gas tank fuel and the Moxie engine, I'll be all metaphoric for no reason, got ignited in the summer of 1996 when I was, quote, done. And Good luck! and maybe come back if you don't die kind of stuff and just you know, kind of cast your fate to the wind. So it all just brewed and marinated and simmered and slow cooked throughout the entire 90s. It didn't come to fruition first until 10 years later, but that's how it all got started. And so I want to come back to the,
0: the concert pianist thing because you've written and shared many times and you alluded to it just now that music was a significant grounding force for you during a terrible ordeal because it was something that you could control. And that's something that you've expressed before. And now here's what I love about that framing, because in a physical sense, you actually didn't have control over music because for a while you lost control over your fine motor skills, right? And there wasn't a guarantee that you'd get them back. So when you say you had control over music, I think you mean something else, right?
1: So can you talk about that a little bit? Well, it goes back to how if you're lucky enough to have an anchor during the storm, the one thing you can cling to as a hope mechanism. All my friends went to grad school. They all lived their lives. And the only thing that got stripped away from me that mattered at that time was my ability to play piano. And my right hand was fine. My left hand didn't work. And all the decisions I made that I apparently weren't my decisions because other people made decisions for me at the medical centers were let's just cure this kid at any cost. And they never thought that rehabilitating my left hand was important to me. This is emblematic in a story I tell numerous times, but it's one of the most nodding head, thanks for coming to my TED Talk kind of things I I do (laughs) because it speaks to the fact that we are so out of control when we're in the cancer store. We don't know what to shop for. We're at the kindness of strangers or maybe at the kindness or the risk of shareholder value to whatever they're going to make money on you by doing. But in my case, yes, I was a concert pianist. My left hand stopped working. I had no fine motor coordination. Even after the surgery, it kind of came back a little bit. But then here's the story. They wanted to give me chemotherapy after radiation, after surgery, with what I now know was data pulled out of their ass. They just made it up. And when I said to them, when am I going to die? They said, well, now that you're alive somehow, all of these months later, We're going to give you a 50% chance to survive five years. And I'm 22 at this point. Like, well, that sucks. Right. (laughs) How about a 2000% chance of dying when I'm 80? I'd rather get that. And they said, but wait, there's more like this (laughs) infomercial kind of thing. We want to give you chemotherapy. And I said, great. What will that make that 50% number jump to? Here's where you win, Johnny. Like, drum roll, please. And we're like, we're expecting like 70, 80%, like, and they're like 55%. And not just the eye roll of like, really, that that's really bad calculus on the chalkboard. But here's where the nodding head starts. What they didn't tell me, and I'll tell you how I found out later, was that the chemotherapy regimen that they wanted to give me contained a particular platinum drug called Vincristin, which at certain doses is known to create permanent peripheral neuropathy, which is permanent nerve damage to your fingers and toes. So if you've ever slept on your arm and woke up and it's like, whose arm is this? Right. It's that every day, all day for the rest of your life. And you're only, oh, I don't know, a concert pianist. Right. So the question is, how did I wind up learning that that is what would have happened if I said yes? Is Again, this goes back to navigating the insanity of healthcare, at least probably everywhere. My uncle happens to be a genetic researcher. He's one of the leading voices on the planet. My dad's best friend, not like, you know, avuncular uncle, but Jewish uncle, right? And (laughs) he took so much pride in being available to my father and I and our care team as an expert. And he basically said to these doctors over the phone or like a fax or whatever it was, I'd like to see this chemotherapy protocol on behalf of Matt before he says yes. Because he kind of knew in that sense, with the spidey sense, like what the hell was in there and what it possibly could have done to me. So he's the one that called me up. Telephone, kids, look it up. Telephone, cords, rotary dial on the wall, yellow phone. That was life in 1985. And you know, I'm paraphrasing, but can you imagine telling this to your 22-year-old godson? Matt, you don't want chemotherapy. You'd rather die in five years without it than live 80 with it. And I said, why? Because it's going to cripple your ability to play piano ever again. So is it worth living five years and rehabilitating for your passion or living 80 years without that ever again in your life? Just process that thought. At what cost is cure to these doctors? And that was what really set me off in terms of they have no idea what's important to me. And they're not discussing this trade-off with you at all. No, they didn't know. It was only until I went back in like late May of 96 with my parents and said, I don't want chemotherapy because I don't want peripheral neuropathy. And they said, how'd you know about that? (laughs) Right. I said, because you gave my data to my uncle because he demanded it. And I'd rather die in five years playing piano than have neuropathy for 80 years. And they're like, but we're trying to save your life. I was like, can I curse? I mean, if I can't, whatever. (laughs) Like that's the sentiment was like, go after yourself and I'm going to just go take my chances. And that was the moxie that I had, which a lot of people just don't have inherently. I'm going to do what's best for me. And you don't seem to care about that. So I don't need you anymore in my life. And I'm firing you as my doctors.
0: And what's so amazing about this is that you're doing this totally by yourself. Like, as you've said, you're adrift in an ocean of doctors who kind of don't care to involve you in any of these trade-offs that deeply involve your life. And, you know, one of the things I I talk about a lot on Good Faith Effort is the importance of community. And that's a major theme in the work that you've done and that you do subsequent to this, because you kind of resolve that people are not going to be alone in this experience. And because what you experienced was a particularly terrifying illustration of a larger phenomenon in American life, right, where mainstream culture, like, you know, The kind of thing you see celebrated in TV, movies, magazines, social media, and what have you. Mainstream culture encourages us to really believe that all you need is you, right? Like You can do anything, be anything, (laughs) and to the extent that you have attachments to other people or groups, those things mostly hold you back from finding personal fulfillment, right? So that's the plot of like every Disney movie ever. Your parents, your community, whatever, just don't get it, and it takes some plucky young hero to break free from this or that outmoded constraint. And you could have told that kind of story about yourself where you get this terminal diagnosis, you beat the odds, you rehabilitate yourself, you outwit this whole system. And yet this isn't at all how it goes or how you tell your story. What you find instead is that a lack of community is a recipe for being miserable, right? So can you unpack your journey towards understanding the importance of community in coping with cancer or or illness or that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, it starts with the Steve Jobs analogy when he launched the original iPod, which is that you don't give people what they want. You give them what they didn't know they needed. And all due respect to crack rear view and pocket full of kryptonite and jagged little pill, you know, the uh-huh. 90s sucked in general, you know, except maybe Phil Collins and some The spin doctors just woke up in their bed like something terrible has happened. <laughs> Dear spin. Well, I'm going to tweet the spin doctors and just say I I, I, I dragged them <laughs> on the show here. But I I didn't even know it was possible to have a peer. The ad nauseum is my friends and family were awesome, but I was totally alone. And I was surrounded. You know, my dad was very well known on Staten Island as a high school principal. And the community was like, oh, my God, Matt!" It was great. I was validated to get support. They nearly kicked us out of the hospital because there were too many flowers delivered to the room. It was so wonderful to have that. And The, the Jews are undefeated. We, I'm telling you, it was it was like a bar mitzvah <laughs> all over again. It was fantastic. Right. You know, looking at the bright side, but I meant it like wandering the earth like Cain or just adrift, not even knowing it was possible to not feel self-loathing and judged because I, I lost all this weight. I lost my hair. I lost my virility. I lost everything about me that made me a man. I was scared. You know, back then it was also very whisper, right? You couldn't disclose it and I had to hide it and wear a hat and with a scar behind my head, I wore a scarf, like really, really like sad whisper, very terms of endearment, just like this shadow culture of, I can't tell you what's going on. So there really were no nonprofits back then. There really, there was no internet. There was no way to know things were there. There were some things in the waiting room with flyers and whatnot, but they were all geriatric people or Little Timmy. And Little Timmy needs help. But I wasn't Little Timmy, and I wasn't Grandpa Simpson. So I wandered. What really transformed everything for me happened to be when I did rehabilitate myself, got back behind a piano, launched a plan B career in advertising, and just began giving little concerts here and there, and then eventually coming out of the cancer closet and saying. I wrote these because I was sick and I'm here. And five years later, I did throw a legitimate second bar mitzvah at 26 years old. Wow. With 500 guests out of pocket. I was doing very well. This is pre.com. Just self explainers And it was only through then giving piano concerts to cancer patients, 2001, 2002, I finally met my first peer. I've written about it extensively. This is an entire LinkedIn story on it called just Craig Another Hamish guy, brain cancer. I love it. Jew, New York City, bald, went to Binghamton with me, was in the a cappella group with me, but I didn't know him and all these concentric how the hells were going on. And Craig was like, I want to know you. I want to help you. How would you like to be an advocate? My response, what the hell's an advocate?
0: Right, I was just going (laughs) to (laughs) say.
1: But that is literally how, and I don't overuse the word literally, I was transformed in the moment with what I didn't know I needed. And Craig was this gateway drug to patient advocacy and young adult cancer conversations and data and policy and community. And again, stupid cancer is exactly what I wished I had in 1996.
0: The reason I I think so deeply about this kind of thing is because, again, I'm so deeply convinced that community in whatever form you find it is really just the greatest gift a person can receive and not just receive, but can give to others. And when I think about abstracting from your experience to something broader that I think anybody can connect to, especially in 2020, it's that in so many ways where I don't want to stretch the analogy too far, but I don't think it's that big a stretch that in so many ways as a society, we're just like deeply sick It's not physical illness, although obviously we're in the middle of like a historic pandemic, but like emotionally, spiritually sick, just look at the headlines. It's so easy and obvious to see. Just look around at, oh, I don't know, everything is more investment in the idea of community. Is that important for us to heal? Like if we're thinking about how we heal ourselves beyond just like the symptoms that we see in the news here or there, is community the kind of thing we need to bring us together? How do we, how do we build that kind of
1: thing? What do you need to do to build a community? So this is the Kvetchi airing of the grievances portion of the podcast. We're
0: just after Festivus, so it's the right time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the over-under on the benefits of tribalism have clearly yielded evil and good. And whether or not you choose to believe in the power of humanity to overcome and where your cockeyed optimism or cockeyed pessimism lives... I like to believe that tribalism ultimately, what, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice? I really do believe there's a course correction, but I believe there's a larger course correction coming largely from parents my age and younger who are now breeding new, whatever the Gen A is, like 20, 10 and older. If your kids are under 10, you're a new kind of parent. And you are aware that online has saturated our capacity for social, in-person, real-life connection. There's a value for the balance. No one's going to deny the fact that, yes, the internet exists. It's changed civilization forever. Mankind will never be the same. But we went too far in one direction, becoming dependent and saturated with the dopamine hits of social media and the illusion of friendship versus actual friendship. You know, pandemic notwithstanding, because that's been the worst thing ever to hit us in God knows how long. But pre-pandemic or what we learned from pandemic in tandem with the lessons that social media is social isolation. And that, again, this illusion of friendship and this illusion of peer and this illusion of likes and retweets, that's not the gratification you should be having as a human being. The gratification you should have as a human being with other human beings is shared experience, shared knowledge and shared wisdom in real life and yes online support groups are fantastic when done right when self policed and having started one before the internet using i think we stole Lady Gaga's forums code back in 2006 to create the stupid cancer forums true story because you could do that back then and we just did it <laughs> we didn't get a lot of our followers but we got you know we got the forums It was before Safe Space was Safe Space. It became this democratized self-policing ecosystem where you could supplement online with offline. There used to be a balance between online and offline. And with my kvetchy old man hat, I miss the balance because we've leaned more towards online because it's cheaper, easier more convenient and because the entire, if you've watched The Social Dilemma, non-conspiracy, great documentary, it really is an experiment in human psychology to move us into more eyeballs on a screen than eyeballs in real life. That's all I have to say about that.
0: Amen. Matthew, thank you so much for being with us. Everybody, listen to the Out of Patience podcast. It's really wonderful. And looking forward to having you back again. This is amazing.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I think there are two common mistakes we tend to make when our lives, our whole world, feels like it's collapsing around us. The first is we let ourselves get numb. We just become zombified, giving up any sense of agency, letting people around us make decisions for us. And the second is we do the opposite. We decide we don't need anyone at all. I can do it all on my own. But if there's any lesson to learn from the Exodus story or from someone like Matthew Zachary or the Matthew Zachary's we know in our own lives, it's that both of those ways, apathy or rabid individualism lies madness. If we really want to secure a life of meaning, purpose, and true fulfillment, we need to remember the importance of agency, of taking responsibility for ourselves, and at the same time, the importance of community, and being able to rely on others who care for you and whom you love in turn. And if we can do that, we'll go a long way towards putting our broken world back together. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lam and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com.
1: The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.